This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Three, two, one. Wait, hold on. I left my printout. <laughs> Leaving that in. Leaving all this, <laughs> all this awkward silence. Staying in the podcast. Uh, all right. Three, two, one. Holy crap, welcome back to another Orange Recovery Science podcast. It's been a minute, been a minute. I guess we've been busy or something or too much baseball watching for you baseball guys, too much preseason football for this guy, but uh, the gang's all here um, for a special podcast. I think we were, it was going to be titled How to Break Down a BFR Paper, but I think we're switching it to Kyle's Got a Bee in His Bonnet, and so... <laughs> <laughs> here's the gist of it. a paper i just don't out. have a reason to wear a bonnet kyle me and kyle <laughs> saw it and got all worked up about the paper and the methodology and the physiology and the this and that and we just started going down of you know so many things come out and you'll see something like this one and basically bfr doesn't do anything for neoa um and then when you look at the paper it's like man there's a lot of flaws in this thing so what we wanted to do here is kind of discuss things you should look for in a BFR paper, not just all the BFR parameters, but also just, you know, are the physiological just basics being hit if it's going to be a, an exercise type paper? Um, and also just what what makes a paper in a, in a study a study? So we're not going to go deep into freaking looking at power analysis and you know, is it observational? Is it interventional? It, I think everyone listening to this podcast should understand that stuff. If not, you can get all that information elsewhere. But what we do want to go into again is is just some of the basics here. So Kyle, it's Angry Kyle's podcast. Why don't you start it off, man, of what you think? Angry Kyle's this. podcast. Well, we should give the title of the paper, um, which was ultimately really what perked my ears straight away uh, when I when I read this. Uh, the title is The Use of a Single Resistance Exercise with or Without Blood Flow Restriction in the Treatment of Pain in Knee Osteoarthritis, a Randomized Controlled Trial, or Randomized Clinical Trial, I should say. Um, is it published in the, is it the Brazilian Journal of Physiology? Is that correct? Of pain, I think. Pain, Brazilian Journal of Pain. So yeah, I impact uh, factor of one point two. Point so not not real big. Um, <laughs> bigger than IJSPT, I believe. But um, oh, oh, oh ouch! Well, it is. Got fired. Oh, I'm just stating <laughs> facts here. Um, <laughs> When so, I can't so, get papers so, in, that's where I go. So I know. I know this is true. Um, <laughs> uh, the, uh, so anyway, I, uh, I read this title and I saw single resistance exercise. And then I saw NeoA and I immediately thought, please don't tell me that they did one exercise and they did twice a week visits and they were expecting something positive. Cause if you're just doing the one exercise, you're probably not getting all the sets per week. Like we've discussed on, on this podcast before, but kind of looping back to the point that Zach has probably made more than anyone that, you know, you need right around 
10 sets per week um, to see increases in muscle size. Now, you shrink it, shrinking that down to increases in muscle strength is maybe a bit of a stretch, but generally speaking, you know, a lot of times in these sort of clinical scenarios, we're, we're kind of hoping to put both muscle on and both strength on. So um, the this paper, their primary outcome was it was actually kind of hard to figure that out, um, but it was actually the reduction in pain that they were looking to see. Um, and then their secondary outcome were increases in strength and functional strength. Um, I think there was another secondary outcome that I'm not quite just remembering. I highlighted them. So we'll, we'll look at that and, and tell it, you. It was to improve um, strength and functional capacity in patients with NEOA. Strength and functional capacity, not strength and functional strength. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, the main the main thing for me that kind of got me going on that was the the single resistance exercise. Started looking at the paper a little bit more closely, and, and other things kind of started to pop up. But it just kind of put this idea in my head of maybe it might be kind of fun to just talk about. Well, how do we? You know, there's so many papers that come out. And you can't, you can't read all of them, you know? So how do you sort of maybe quickly look at something and decide, okay, this one's going in the garbage pile. Maybe I'll grab this paper and I'll have it. And if for some reason I need to read it on down the road, I'll, I'll pick it up. But, you know, I, I, in the end, I was actually kind of happy that I read this paper a little bit further because there were some, I thought there were some good parts to it that we can discuss a little bit later, but um, there was, I just thought there was a major flaw in that they used a single exercise um, for three sets on the whole, and they did it twice a week, and we're expecting some changes from that. So, uh, what do y'all? What do y'all think? What do y'all think? What do you? What do you look for when you pick up a paper, and you're just gonna try to start figuring out if you even want to read it? The title. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, title, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say you don't just read the abstract and and take it at face value and go from there. Well, I don't know. I'm asking. What do you do? I, I I mean, if you're asking me, I look at the title. Number one, is there any red flags? No. Then I go, all right. Well, here's the abstract. I, I typically jump right to the results of the abstract and just kind of go, what did they find? You know. Then I'll kind of look at, well, they're you know, I, but I look at the abstract first pretty thoroughly and from there then i typically go to the methods usually yeah. just to kind of look yep. at the methods and you know see if there's anything that sort of you know piques an interest or makes me go eh, i don't know this doesn't make a whole lot of sense um so but that's me what do y'all do well i look to who the authors were because now being in this so long and knowing so many people in this area um, I have a pretty good idea of who I trust and who I don't trust and not really recognizing these folks and then reading into it. Um, they have done a little bit of BFR stuff before, but not a lot. Um, and so I, I'm already like, okay, are these kind of BFR newbies? Cause then I want to really look at what their BFR methods were, you know, did they do it right? Uh, as far as what we know that should have an effect. Um, and then like, we you know, we were discussing that paper on our call the other day and, we're going through it and want to break it down. And like, I'm not sure if I trust it. And the next thing I always look at is if I can get it, who was the reviewer or the editor? And we saw on that one, it was Jeremy. 
And it's like, okay, well, Jeremy's pretty sharp and, and he's pretty detail oriented. So he doesn't let things usually just slide through very easily. So th that's a quick, like, okay, I can, I can look at that and see what's going on. You guys. Yeah, I would say I would probably do something pretty similar. You know, you, obviously you're going to read the title because that's how, how you're going to find it. Um, scanning, whether that be through Google Scholar or uh, like a PubMed search, whatever you're looking for, you're just, just scanning the title. From there, I'll kind of graze over the authors as well, see if I recognize anybody, and then go to the abstract. And if I find that it kind of looks like it it may kind of fit what I'm looking for. I want to look at it a little bit deeper. I'll pull the full text. Um, one of the first things that I do when I get the full text is look at the purpose of the paper um, because that will set you up or clue you in on what specifically they wanted to look at. Um, and just quickly how to find that, that is typically almost always in the last paragraph of the introduction. Um, a lot of times as well, they'll have the the author's hypothesis is going to be right in that last paragraph of the introduction as well. So um, it's always good um, if the authors put their hypothesis in there. <laughs> a lot of times they don't. Um, <laughs> I, I was then, just going to say uh, a lot of but, times they don't put it in yeah, there. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of times yeah. they don't, but it, it kind of. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later about like if you're setting up a P value and you're going to statistically analyze this, you obviously have a hypothesis because you're testing the null hypothesis. So um, from there, um, like Kyle mentioned, pretty much right into the methods. Um, once I get to the methods, um, I look at what the groups were. Um, you know, do we have a control group? What's a control group consist of? Were they training? Was it just a straight up control where we don't do anything uh, from there? The training parameters, do you, are they matched, equated to some extent, volume matched, effort matched? Um, and then on the BFR side of things, I look at specifically, um, what pressures were used, how they determine that pressure. Was it just basically we're getting pressure one time and then uh, we're applying that that percentage of um, limb occlusion pressure um, throughout eight weeks, 12 weeks of a training study. Um, and then I'll look at the um, how they determine load as well. And then obviously, because that will go into the outcome measure that you're that they're looking to see changes in um, was load reassessed um, throughout the training plan or um, did they simply just do 20 or 30 percent one RM for 12 weeks um, and kind of go from there. Yeah, I don't really have a lot to add on that. I mean, typically go about it the same way start with just looking for that hypothesis. Are they, you know, stating up front what they're looking for um, after going through the abstract and then getting into the methods, which typically leave a lot to be desired as far as what they report they did and how they set it up. And then, you know, go from there and look at results and conclusions. So. So here's something I think we should discuss, which maybe doesn't get discussed enough. Is the trial registered? Mm -hmm. So this was obviously an interventional trial. It was a randomized trial. That 
typically you would want to be registered on clinicaltrials.gov. And so if people don't know what clinicaltrials.gov is, um, it is where if you are doing a interventional study or any study where you randomize into two groups and you have an intervention, then you should register your trial. You don't have to, and, but most institutions require you to do it. Most IRBs, good IRBs are going to want you to do it. And most, if you get a grant, you know, if you get an NIH grant or our DOD grants, um, part of getting that grant is you have to register your trial. And so when you register your trial on clintrials.gov, you have to put what your hypothesis is, um, what your methods are, um, and what your outcomes are. And one of the main reasons you register trials now is to show negative results, right? So if your results don't meet it and they're, they're negative, you know, lots of times people won't publish those trials or will fudge around what that says to try and show a positive result. It's much easier to get published with a positive result. This is a way where you can see the results of that trial if it was negative. I couldn't find this one on clinicaltrials.gov. Um, so doesn't mean that they broke any laws. They might have not been required because it wasn't funded or it wasn't through their institution. Um, but, you know, that's a way to try and get a hypothesis out of something here. Just as an aside here, you know what's crazy? I, I go through clintrials.gov every so often just to see what people are doing out there nowadays. Whenever we were first registering some of our trials, I mean, it was like one page, like maybe a page is 10 trials typically, you know, and I think we barely saw 10 trials in there. You know how many trials there are? And I went through to make sure there wasn't, you know, like using weird term for blood flow restriction. It wasn't actually BFR. What do you guys, how many guys do you think there are right now? Are there over a hundred? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it would be over a hundred now. I don't know. So you're just doing the over? That's, that's um, how you're Well, doing let me go 99 in, in members of Bob Barker. A <laughs> <laughs> hundred and a hundred and seventy-seven trials. Wow. Right? Goodness. BFR. Isn't that nuts? Wow. That is let me see real quick. Let me just put in the search term for osteo. I was gonna say usually on I had to put it all on a spreadsheet to be able to break it all down. Uh, there's a couple of double hits on here but it looks like 30 no like 20 something because some of these they hit osteoarthritis with two terms in there but over 20 osteoarthritis and bfr trials alone right now that are in there nice. which is pretty nuts yeah. okay so but it's pretty common on these papers when they publish them to list their trial registration number and stuff right yeah, if it's if it's registered yeah, if it, if it has been. So this one didn't look like they listed that. So the higher impact the journal is, the more they're going to definitely require that it's registered. You know, like I pointed out, my, my friend Dan Rowan, when they got into the journal medicine, he said that was one of the hardest review processes he's ever been through. Like they broke down everything they had in their paper and compared it to what their clean trials registration said. And if they varied off of that one iota, they got they got hammered on it there. So, um, you know, these big impact journals, they, they really go back and see what your hypothesis was and if you stuck to it. And did your methods follow exactly what it was there as well? In the, so. uh, in the methods on this paper, it does look like they registered with some sort of registration on the Brazilian side, maybe. Okay. So... It, and that might like be where trials, but maybe their yeah. version of it. 
Okay. That, again, it's not a, you know, most everyone from around the world will register here, but maybe, you know, because it was done in Brazil. Mm-hmm. I mean, dude, if you just go look at these, so you got Utah, Kansas, Duke, University of Cal, Oklahoma, NYU, Lindung, George Fox, Henry Ford, Aspatar, Minnesota, Rush, Turkey, um, Belgium, University of Washington, Brazil, uh, Twickerham University, University of, um, of Missouri, the Balearic Islands, China, Norton Healthcare Systems, Zenova, VA, 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 University of Colorado, University of Ghent. I mean, it's crazy from around the world how many people are looking at BFR right now. So, again, well, I say this is one of the most researched things I think that are out there. But anyways, if y'all want me to read off all 170 something, I will. No, that's okay. We're, we're good, John. Okay. We're going to pass on that one. <laughs> Um, so, I, like, quick recap, though. Um, what does the registration of a trial help control for? A, a lot of, like, I would say the pretty generic terms, like p-hacking. Um, it, lets, it lets other people know, like, what is being done. Um, it kind of gets your trial out there, what you're looking at. Um, and then like Johnny was just talking about specifically as well, when it comes to the hypothesis, a lot of times what will happen is if your trial, your project doesn't get a positive result, you'll try to run numerous statistical tests to see if you can get a significant oh, yeah. finding. Um, and then you report on that. But by having your trial registered and anytime I don't remember. I can't remember if Johnny just talked about this or not, but if, when you make an edit on that clinical trial uh, registry, it documents that. So you can see historically all the edits um, that have been made. So if the, if the hypothesis has changed, you can see that. Um, So I would say that's probably the, the big reason why is it's lets everybody else know what you're currently working on or what your project is. So you don't start getting repeats of the same thing or similar design studies and then uh, accountability. Right. There you go. And typically so, like we've had to make edits and it's, we had to change the ages on enrollment because we weren't getting enrollment. So we had to either bring it down some or bring it up some, or we've changed pressures, you know, like our femur trial, you know, people weren't tolerating that pressure. So we had to keep dropping the pressure down. And when you change it on the IRB, then you're supposed to go back to clean trials and put an edit so that you know what the pressures actually were. And also people come to us all the time. Do you guys have any ideas for a BFR trial or is anyone looking at MS? I think there's four MS trials on there. So you can say, just go to clintrials.gov, type in blood flow restriction, type in multiple sclerosis, and it'll pull up all those trials. So you can see what those trials are. So it's going to, these clinical, this registry will serves as basically a resource to see what's being done um, or what has been done. And then also as a means of improving the quality of research, because it's a lot harder to engage in kind of fraudulent behaviors and that sort of thing. When you've already kind of put out there what you're doing, you can't just go back and, and change it. So, which, right. is, you know, Zach mentioned p-hacking, there's also, which is basically, you're just kind of manipulating data until you get a significant result. Um, there's also harking, which is hypothesis after results known. So basically you don't even put out a hypothesis like we kind of referenced earlier, but you just kind of come up with, up with one after the fact, um, after you see a result. 
a newer uh, thing that's coming out that is not done in any of the physical therapy journals presently is something called registered reports. Have y'all, have y'all heard of those? Just for I me. Have. Yeah. Kyle Kimbrell. Yeah. From <laughs> just for me, the, the journal of Kyle Kimbrell is where I, I well, and I mean, I, and I don't deserve, well, I don't deserve credit for, you know, knowing this stuff. I get it from Eric Maida and, and PT Inquest and, and the, the folks that um, everything hurts. Are kind of the two people that are groups that I kind of rely on to at least try to stay up on that. But registered reports are, are kind of neat because um, there are some ways still to kind of get around clinical trials. Um, and what the registered report does basically is you essentially put together a study, um, you figure out you know how it has to be powered to get results. You run all you know you, you disclose all of your methods, all the statistics you're going to use and all this, and you write up a big paper basically describing how you are going to conduct this study and you submit that to a journal and the journal kind of puts it out there. You go through this whole review process and whatnot. Um, and then essentially what they'll do is they say, all right, and they publish your paper on how you're going to conduct this trial. And it's essentially an agreement then to publish your study after the fact, regardless of the results. So that kind of gets rid of some of that, you know, only publishing positive results and all that. So it's another mm -hmm. kind of open science, um, you know, thing that is coming up, if you will. But unfortunately, none of the, none of the PT journals presently are, are doing that. I was going to say, I don't think, I know of any of our journals that do that. Yeah, no, they're not. It's not a it's not a thing yet. So, but hopefully well, another thing on clinical trials registration, their number one, if you read their kind of mission statement, number one is also for patient advocacy to look and see if they want to find a trial. Which you might be like, well, what patient's going to go on there? But I actually, a buddy of mine has terminal cancer right now, and I'm I've been looking through the registration because he's willing to go anywhere around the world um, to see if for his specific cancer is there a trial. And you can also look when you go on there. It will say if they are um, recruiting, if they're recruiting by invitation only, if they've stopped recruiting as well. So if you have a patient with a certain condition that maybe you think BFR would be useful and they're, you know, you can always look there and see if there's a trial in your area or that they'd be willing to go to. You know, if I had MS or something, I would sort of go over to Colorado and have Dr. Menaggio put me through his trial. Uh, you can email Johnny at info <laughs> to, to get hey, Dr. Manago's address. Yeah. Just show up at his house. Hey, Mark. No, no. Go to Clint Johnny Owens. Can, He's got, I think, three on here. You can pull him up. He even has his email. I'll put his email um, out there on Twitter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's too funny. Uh, okay. Well, then, from a what do you look for from a BFR standpoint? And we put this out in our position stamp paper. Jeremy put a great one out a long time ago, kind of like a call to action for studies. So what are the key parameters that you guys look for to understand? Did they do even do BFR right? Yeah. Or what do uh, they report? Well, I mean, the big one is the individualized pressure. Um, you know, did and and I think kind of branching off of that, you have to go, well can you individualize pressure with the device that was used? Yes. Um, so that, you know, those are kind of the 
at least if we're just talking BFR, that's kind of the main thing that I'm going to look for is, you know, did you do this? Because I know it's going to affect the results in one way, shape or form. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, we've started to see a number of papers. In fact, Nick, you know, our buddy, Nick Rolnick, um, he wrote a, a letter to the editor um, on a, uh, a study that was a, a volleyball, it was some volleyball players, I think, but they, they basically used a device that, advertises that it can't fully occlude a limb. Um, and then they stated that they used a means of individualizing pressure that Dr. Linicky has published uh, based on circumference and cuff width and all that. Um, and so they use that and it's like, well, but that equation that Dr. Linicky put together, it won't work with a cuff that cannot occlude a limb so right um you know I, I'll, those are kind of the things is for me is i want to know first of all first and foremost did they individualize the pressure and then how did they go about doing that how did they measure it was it some sort of validated way of determining that pressure that'd be where i would start well and to know that then what we gotta know is what width of cup they used mm -hmm. and yeah. what system did they use so Lower for instance, especially Lower yeah. extremity, especially. I would say. So, for instance, this paper used a 7.5 centimeter cuff, which is three inches. That's pretty narrow, right? Not super wide. Um, and said they got 70% LOP in standing on this. Now, we did a paper looking at Katsu devices, which aren't too far off from the width of this cuff. And we could not get full LOP, even at 400 millimeters of pressure with the capsule device looking at the popliteal artery. So right off the bat, I'm like, did you guys, are you really at 70% LLP here with that narrow cuff? You know, how are you getting that? And it could be, they're just getting one superficial artery. You know, that's part of the problem when you're just doing something like that arterial artery, there, there could be all sorts of other arterial supplies that you just can't measure doing a distal measurement like that. And they also talked about doing bilateral cuffs, but didn't really explain if they measured one limb at a time, which I'm assuming they did, because that would make sense, but they don't really say. And they also did it in standing, which is another thing that's going to alter how much pressure you need to get occlusion. It'll make, it'll make it even harder. Yeah. And, yeah, and pressure is going to be higher. And, you know, using 70% of that higher pressure, you know, we don't really know if that's going to be the best target. Uh, and they don't include any information on whether or not they measured more than once, you know, in a 12 week mm -hmm. study. So mm -hmm. uh, that could be another factor that would affect, you know, is that 70% going to be the 70% throughout, right? Right. Or so, could they ever even get it, which I'm, I'm really suspect of. Right. And... It would be good to know the device. They did put their device that they used, but I, I searched high and wide <laughs> and I can't find mm -hmm. anything with that thing. So I don't, as far, I think it might be just like a blood pressure cuff. I'm, I'm not real sure. Um, but if that's the case, it wouldn't even keep pressure, right? So if you did get it, um, it's it's gonna be all over the place. There's, there's gonna be a paper coming out soon that just shows the variability in all these different devices, it's, it's huge. And the ability to keep that pressure, um, you know, like we used Delphi, it was basically 
right on, um, didn't lose pressure and kept it at what the pressure was. A bunch of these other devices, it's like all over the place. And a lot of these pop-up ones, we know they just kind of drop pressure over time. So was it really BFR then at that point? Okay. What else, what else do y'all look for in a BFR paper? What was their set rep scheme? Do they follow kind of what everyone is typically doing, which doesn't mean they have to do it. But if you don't follow that, I would, I would like an understanding of why you maybe aren't doing higher volume, which is what BFR typically requires because you're trying to get to fatigue. You know, like they call this a 12 week interventional study. I would, I would almost throw those first two weeks out as practice session. Yeah. The first week they did a set, they did one set of 15. Yeah, man, it's kind of junk, you know. Um, yeah. Here's here's the thing, like to put this into perspective of, of anybody who goes to the gym, their entire 12-week protocol were, were like warm-up sets yeah. at, at the end of the day. So just – I don't think we formally talked about what they did, but they basically did – Well, what <laughs> – What? I, well, I mean, I don't want to see it too far off track here. Uh, well, okay. So what we talk about or what, what we think, you know, you, you have to look at the volume that they're doing. We, we think somewhere in the ballpark of getting to a load 20 to 30% one RM for 75 reps. And then what has been out there and what we kind of push on um, progressive overload is you get to failure, you get to that fatigue point in that last set of exercise, then you start progressing the load. And then, you know, ideally what you want to see is a reassessment of their 1RM or however you're basing the strength that you set the load to. You reassess that roughly every four weeks. So you formally reassess the training loads that way, but you just kind of progressively overload them in between as they're able to complete um, the 75 reps. Right. So the most they did was 45 reps. Yeah. 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 Once they finally got into this. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just going to say beyond what we talked about with BFR parameters, a, a lot of the rest of what we're looking for is, you know, does this match what we know about exercise prescription principles is, you know, the big target for, yeah. for way off track with exercise BFR isn't going to save it. And I think we've, we've talked about that multiple times. Yeah. Which I think, you know, requires you kind of come into the table when you're going to look at a paper like this with, some level of exercise knowledge you know you need to be kind of coming to the table to pick to pick up on these things pretty quickly um it it really helps you to pick up on that so um yeah and i guess we need to put it out there we didn't say their conclusion was bfr didn't do any different than low load for people in the oa no significant difference between the two and so right off the bat you're like okay let's let's understand is this is this true or or were there some fallacies here so, because that that volume, goes against what we know, at least what we think, right? We know, right? Yeah, I mean, because I mean, I mean Luke's of papers, ideological papers, yeah. Luke's papers. Well, they've yeah. been put out there like this is the first paper that's ever looked at knee pain um, in in clinical people doing BFR. It's like, really? <laughs> Did you do a little bit of a, a search? I mean, <laughs> they made a number of questionable statements. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they kept citing a one specific BFR review paper and calling it a study over and over from a paper that I don't think is a great paper. Okay. So volume. One thing that um, is always interesting is you'll see these methods and it's 
you know, we did the typical 75 rep scheme at 80% LOP, and that's all you see. And we did this on post-op ACLs. No freaking way, dude. Um, I mean, show me your week one or two post-op patient that's like, hell yeah, put me on 80% and let's go. I'm hitting 75, you know. Um, and I've even asked some people on papers that come out like, really, did that work? They're like, oh yeah, yeah, we had no problem. I'm like, Jesus, you're better than I am because we, <laughs> we have a hell of a problem. So in our trials, we do have to document the total volume of work, the load, and what their final PTP, their, their personalized tourniquet pressure was in each session. So we can go back and do a subgroup analysis. And, and I think that'll be valuable. And with these bigger trials, you know, hopefully like the fever trial, if we can say, dude, the first four weeks after surgery, they could only on average could handle like 62% um, percent LOP. And that's like, okay, then we start understanding, yeah, we need to start a little bit lower and go up. Now it's impossible. You couldn't put every session and every, every subject in there, but you can kind of show what an average volume of reps were maybe over time as well as what kind of what your LOP averages were over time. Anything else on a BFR side that you guys would look at right away? So tell us the width of the cuff. Tell us your LOP, how you determined it. Tell us what kind of device you use so we could understand was it auto-regulated or non-auto-regulated, a pump-uppy thing versus an actual surgical grade tourniquet. Tell us what your volume is. If you're going to go and create your own volume scheme, is there a reason? You know, you could say, we, we just didn't think this patient population could tolerate 75 reps. Okay, well, but then you're missing kind of the physiological basics of BFR of trying to get that muscle to fatigue. Did you increase? And we've seen this in multiple studies where they, like you pointed out, Zach, they never increase load for some reason. So you got to increase load. You got to reassess LOP because it's going to change over time. Both. I mean, it changes visit to visit. You know? Yeah. Like I've, I've had, I got one of the cases that we, that I use, at least when I teach, I, that guy's LOP changes 40 millimeters of mercury on occasion yeah. from visit to visit. Now, I think he's an outlier in general because um, I, I wouldn't say that was the common thing to see. But yeah, I mean, I think you just measure it every time. Other than one. I jacked my knee up recently trying to do young man things in an old man body. And so I've been doing a bunch of BFR on my leg. And uh, my LLP, I measured it the other day and it was like 29 millimeters of mercury higher than the last one. And I was like, motherfucker. You know, the uh, the other thing I was going to say was when you're talking about on the volume side of things, if you don't like, you know, if you deviate from kind of a standardized set rep scheme, I think the thing of it is that you have to put in there, too, is you kind of talked about. Um, you know, if you modify the the tourniquet pressures and stuff, as long if you miss on pressure or you miss on load, making sure you get high effort because just from yeah. the pure muscle standpoint, that that is what drives muscle growth. It's not load. Um, it, it is really effort and the effort exerted by the muscle. And so, you know, who knows? You know, you do forty five reps. Um, 
are you fatigued? I probably doubted it at 30% of your one RM versus like, you know, you get those people that um, just don't tolerate the pressure in the cuffer. Um, You know, you you can't really get to a load that you want, but you take that last set to the point of fatigue um, and the muscle's going to respond at that point. It's exerted a pretty high effort there and we probably maximize what we're getting out of it. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see some of these studies, like Johnny already mentioned in what you're getting at, report on if anyone got to failure, you know, because I would suspect that a lot of the BFR conditions that we read about in these papers, people were broken the hell off and got to failure where the comparison group did not. And, yeah, you know, it'd be nice to know that. I mean, that's some of the studies, I, I don't know that I'd fully trust that they did what they said they did, which is why we're having this conversation because, you know, for somebody to do 30% one rep max at 80% LOP when they're relatively, you know, unfamiliar with exercise, good freaking luck. Yeah. Getting through a volume of reps that we know that they're trying to target. So. And to be fair, there are a number of papers that are BFR papers that have, that have done that. Mm-hmm. that do give you effort, that do tell yeah. you they went to failure, that do report the number of reps. I think that they are typically um, not clinical papers. Right. If if we yeah. are, if we're being upfront on that. And so it would be certainly something that would be nice to see taken from the exercise phys side of things and transferred into um, the clinical side of things. Then another big piece is how are you measuring what you want to measure? So for pain, fine, they use a VAS. On this one, they also had as one of their primary outcomes was strength. And for people with NEOA, their baseline test was an isokinetic 60 degree a second knee extensions. Um, That will break off. If anyone's ever done a 60 degree a second isokinetic test, that is hard. So I bet these people really suffered at the start whenever they tried to do that specific test. You know, I, you know, a hierarchy would be an isometric dynamometer test would probably be more feasible in this population. And you're hopefully taking out some of that probably anterior knee pain they first had. Because both groups got more strength on that repeat isokinetic test over time, but they trained for the test the entire time. So both groups are just doing low load knee knee extension exercises over time and then it's like when they repeated the test 12 weeks later they got stronger and these people are like almost went out oh my god look low load seems to really increase strength doing it twice a week for 15 reps for the first you know when you're starting and it's like you know these individuals probably were like jesus christ that test sucked at baseline and then they trained for 12 weeks and then they repeated that 60 degree a second test so Again, I, I think that's a rough one to use on this population. Yeah, well, I, I would I would raise serious issue with the claim that these people's strength actually, like the their muscles' ability to produce force actually changed. It's pain. It's pain. They did a bunch yeah. of low load exercise. Yeah, they settled their pain down. And yeah. now your knee doesn't hurt as much and you can produce yeah. more force. Like it, I, I, you, you, we don't have anything from their methods that would suggest 
that they did anything that would even closely yeah. represent something that would create adaptation in muscles. So right, right. it uh, broke the laws of, physi of physiology, but then they're reporting like, wow, check out these strength gains we made. And it's like, yeah. no, you, you used a painful test and adapted them. And they did show their pain was better after 12 weeks. So hell yeah, they're probably gonna do better on that. Which is, which is kind of wild too, if you think about it, because their primary outcome was pain. Like this, they're telling us up front, this is the thing that we're trying to create change in. And then their secondary outcome, which is strength, which is where you start getting into these potential for false positives and things. And so it's like, why, I don't understand why they even went down that road. They should have said, wow, this is really cool. Like we, we just showed that low load exercise, you know, just twice a week is all you got to do can settle people's pain down, um, you know, and, and then gone from there. Like that would have been a perfectly fine thing in my opinion, to claim for this study. And it would have been perfectly appropriate. Uh, there's just all the other stuff that, how they tried to tie up to strength, which I was like, ah, I don't think you can tie this to strength increases. But. Well, then they spent a paragraph explaining that it's probably just placebo for both these interventions. Yeah, that was the, I mean, that's the other piece is like, there's definitely a strong possibility that it's all placebo and just kind of regression <laughs> to the mid stuff here, so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you if you look at their um, even the strength changes, they they hit on that. Like there was there was these increases. But I mean, in the grand scheme of things, in the reality of things, they're not that impressive. Um, the the people when they put up their relative um, strength, like kilograms of force divided by kilograms of body weight, started at a point three seven. Um, and they were what their one RM was 28 kilograms. And then it went up to roughly 42. You're just kind of guessing. That's the other thing that sucks about these like papers like this. It just throw a bar graph that don't give you absolute numbers. So you can actually yeah. look and see what was the percentage change. You're just trying to eyeball it, but, um, over 12 weeks, I mean, it it comes out to like a forty percent change, which you look at it and you're like, oh man, like that's that's not that's not too shabby, but that's three months of work. And I can tell you, in an untrained population, when you do a little bit of anything, you're going to get a response. Um, and so, I would anticipate a little bit more of a robust response um, within six weeks um, compared to the twelve weeks, but. Um, yeah, they, they still are, um, their one RM strength and their, uh, is, is still under their body weight, um, even at the, at the end of 12 weeks. So they're not really close to what you would ideally look at with like a normalized value. Agreed. My main favorite line in this one was, it should be noted that the main advantage attributed to BFR is to be an effective clinical intervention used to increase strength in healthy individuals. <laughs> so BFR is a clinical intervention that we know um, that its main reason is to help healthy individuals get stronger. No, I, I'm not sure about that statement there either. So maybe it was just lost in translation. Well, somebody, y'all brought up something that I, I feel like we missed out on when we were discussing what we look for with BFR, which is the, the sham protocol or the potential for a placebo type effect. Which is right. something that we have a discussion on pretty frequently. And 
you know, this one didn't really show much of a difference between groups. So wouldn't think it would be a, you know, BFR placebo kind of, you know, potential there. But I do like the, you know, the option for something other than BFR to be the placebo, like the, uh, I think we've discussed the, the nocebo Jamie, trials. Jamie's trial. Yeah. Yeah. Ultrasound. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's a, that's a third arm, so it makes it harder, but, yep. but that's definitely great to see. And let's talk about what a BFR sham typically is. It's, and that's why it was like, well, was this a blinded study? It's like, dude, how are you going to blind this? Like, really? I mean, I, I think I know. Falling off. Yeah. So typically people will use 20 milliliters of mercury um, as a sham protocol. And that's enough to just basically keep the cuff on. And you got to be careful because if you start to get into around 50 milliliters of mercury, you're getting venous occlusion probably. So then it is an actual intervention. So it's enough that it barely can keep the cuff on. And they're like, well, we turned the machine around so they couldn't see the number. It's like, no, I, I think they knew, especially if they're in the clinic and these other people are doing this and, and the cuff is on there. So, um, but that is the, the sham intervention that we see. I never bother with it. There's some trials I'm involved with where they're doing the sham and it just, it was because we just had to stay fine, teach them how to put it at 20 milliliters of mercury on the system. And then, you know, here's, here's the caveat. Their conclusion is the results of our study show BFR with low intensity resi resistance exercise does not produce any additional effects on muscle strength and pain compared to low level exercise alone. And people would see that in the abstract and say, huh, well, there you go. It didn't work for NeoA in that trial. And I, and I think this trial basically would say, well, well, there's a bazillion flaws of why you didn't see a result. I mean, they did the clinical dose of exercise. They did three sets of 15. It was. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's three sets of 10. Isn't that what they yeah, teach okay. in PT well, school? That's the clinical dose. Then they went over and above. Yeah. Yeah. We did. There's at least one. There's at least one thing that we haven't kind of chatted on yet with regard to this paper specifically that, that Zach started to mention and I, I pumped the brakes on him because I wanted to kind of stick to to BFR right then. But, you know, in terms of just kind of looking at methods and picking things apart, I mean, those methods should, I'd say, reasonably follow <laughs> what you might anticipate doing clinically. Uh, and so, Zach, you want to kind of elaborate on that and what, what I'm referring to here? Yeah, I mean, I think like if you look at their set rep scheme, that's honestly about a warm up for, for anybody who actually goes to the gym. And so, you know, they did. Johnny mentioned it. Uh, the first week was just one set of 15. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine bringing someone in the clinic, collecting a copay, put them on the leg extension machine okay, just do 15 reps here. All right, we'll, we'll see you uh, again on Thursday. We're going to do the same thing Thursday. Uh, and then next week, what we're going to do when you come in is we're going to put you on the leg extension machine. We're going to do two sets of 15. Um, you and, better be doing then, a bunch of massage and everything else to, to make them want to be there. Yeah. And, and then by the, by the third week, we're finally going to do our three sets of 15 at – 30% one RM, um, you know, here's the thing. I mean, like I said, you go to the gym, th those are warm up sets. And in, in fact, like people typically are going to do more in a warm up 
than what these people did for, you know, 10 to 12 weeks. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's nowhere close to what is needing to be done, especially when you don't report on the effort, um, that was exerted. So how close were these people to the point of fatigue? Um, that's actually just thought there. My my warm up is four sets of failure at eighty percent one RM. Just so you guys know, then I bump it to ninety to one hundred for okay, my actual yeah, workout. Yeah, that's why that's why my knee hurts. <laughs> that's where that's where we have that problem with uh, the subjectivity of uh, failure. <laughs> exactly. I uh so that wasn't what I was talking about, Zach, which is even funnier to me. <laughs> I thought for sure you were going bilateral. The fact that they um, exercise bilateral for a, a unilateral condition, yeah, expected well, unilateral so, changes. So, so there, so there, there's that issue as well. Um, and just a prelude to that, you know, some of the things like people ask during a course or whenever you talk to them about BFR, they're like, "Well, can you do this bilaterally?" And and sure, like you can certainly do it bilaterally. I have access to do it bilaterally. We have two units in the clinic. So the issue is not units and the feasibility of doing bilaterally. What you have to understand is if you're going to train, if you have a good leg and a bad leg, so to speak, what's the point in doing it bilaterally? Because the good leg is going to be underdosed if if you're dosing it to the um to the bad leg, so to speak. And then ultimately what's going to happen is once you start to get to the point of fatigue or that bad leg starts to tire out a little bit, the good leg's just taking over. Um, yeah. And so, you know, if, if you're going to do things bilaterally, whether you're using BFR or not, you have to train the legs unilaterally. Um, yeah. 70% 1RM on a good leg is going to be completely different than 70% 1RM on a leg coming off a total knee on um a leg coming off an acl reconstruction what have you um yeah but that's what you know luke's acl paper they did bfr on the involved limb and then they did non-bfr they trained bilaterally unilaterally yep. exactly like that yeah so, yeah it's, yeah, it's, again, it's, it's what you, you have you have to do so because we didn't so state super clearly exactly what they did here but they did they basically took a they did bfr on both legs but they trained at a 30 percent rep max of bilateral a bilateral number so um you've got you know who knows what type of work the, the involved limb is actually doing is a problem here yeah so. i'd love to have a force output on each leg to see what the actual output was. I yeah. bet you the good leg was really yeah. taken over. It's just like, you know, I, I've, I've made a comment the other day, I think it was at USC where, you know, just a demo exercise, we had somebody do squats with, you know, a cuff on one leg. And then I'm like, now we're having this done here to kind of show just kind of what you're doing. But I would tell you clinically, I've, I've never once done bodyweight squats with a cuff on one leg. It just doesn't make any sense at all. You yeah. Know? Cause I'm, the leg's going to get tired. You're going to offload it. There's no, I mean, never mind. It'll be a real ugly backs. squat. Yeah. yeah. Real ugly squat. So, you know, any kind of bilateral exercise clinically, I, I just start going. Well, are we are we still doing rehab here, or, 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 or 
are we actually doing performance? Because if you're doing by lot, to me, that basically means the capacity is the same on both sides, which I, I start thinking, well, I, maybe this person needs to be pushed off to a different professional at that point. Yeah. That, that's doing that for a movement pattern and you don't need to be putting loads and BFR cuffs on it. If you want to train a squat, train a squat, but that's not the way you need to do it in the clinic. Right. Right. At least from a strength and hypertrophy standpoint. Yep. All right. So we, did we crush this study enough? Did we make some enemies here um, in Brazil? We did. Uh, so I, can I, cause I did say this, um, there were some things I liked about this study. One of those was, um, they actually did pretty good reporting of their exercise mm. intervention on the whole. And, and part of that had to do with, they, they followed the consort guidelines, which are, I'm not real familiar with those. I know I kind of put in the, our little agenda, the tidier and the cert guidelines consorts, another one of those, just like a, a standard way of reporting the interventions that are done. Um, and so I, I actually, I was like, oh, this is, I think part of our ability to pick this part, this, this study apart like we are, has to do with the fact that they actually followed some guidelines in terms of how they reported their methods. So I, I actually really appreciated that about this study. Um, and I, I, I don't ever like to just trash. They, so. they also did try to progress some loading throughout the study. They did. They, they did, did reassess yeah. rep maxes frequently. Yeah. That was good. Even was though they still underdosed the volume at the new weight, it was, yeah. you know, at least done in a somewhat progressive manner throughout the study. Yeah, for sure. And they reported LOP and, you know, that's, that's good. They reported cuff width. They reported the system they use, even though we have no idea where the hell that thing is or came from. Yeah. And, but then you look at it, LOP probably wasn't really there and, your design just kind of failed after that. And they use good measurements. I mean, they got a biodex. Um, they, you know, they're doing, I don't know why they wouldn't just do an isometric instead of a, uh, an isokinetic, but. Yeah, I would love to, you know, somewhat, they never report that and you can't in studies, but the coefficient of variance on those baseline measures mm -hmm. at 60 degrees a second were probably mm -hmm. all over the place. So how valid even are those things? Um, we, like in our ACL trial that's going on at the base right now, they have to hit within, we have, a, you know, a threshold of coefficient of variance that they report in REDCap. And if it is above it, that test isn't valid. They have to repeat the test and get their CVs with, within line. So, we, you know, we're not going to report that. We'll probably have a blurb that, that, you know, that's what we we made them get within that limits. Uh, but you never see that reported that they were really looking at that on those tests. All right, angry Kyle. What else? Did we hit it all? I mean, I, I think we I think we kind of covered covered all of it. So if we re, if we recap everything, um, the way we look at a paper, just kind of quickly to decide if we care to give it more thought would be title, then maybe kind of skim the results to see if they're divergent from anything that we feel like we understand um abstract and then from there really we would start kind of picking apart the methods and looking for some specific things with regard to bfr whether or not they use individualized pressure can the cuff reasonably do that did they did they tell us how they determine pressure 
did they reassess pressure? Um, then how did they figure up loads? Did they progress loads? You know, did they report effort? That kind of thing. Um, look at the authors. Do you recognize any of those names? Which I, we, we have a, probably a better ability to do that than a lot of our listeners might, at least at this point. Hopefully at some point it kind of evens out, but um, but you can look at the journal too, you know, um, is it a, is it a journal that we know? It doesn't mean like you got to be in a reputable journal to have a good study, but it definitely helps increase the likelihood of that probably. Was the trial registered um, on a clin trials, that kind of thing? Uh, did I miss anything? Did we, did we just adhere to basic exercise kind of guidelines in rehab? Is it breaking the laws of physiology? Is it breaking the laws of physiology? Which, unfortunately, it seems like this paper might have been. <laughs> well, load exercises like They might have been hoping years. to. They might have been hoping to. I won to. this time, bitches. <laughs> Twice a week, 45 reps uh, and 30% 1RM. I can make everything better. That's too funny. All right, man. Well, I think we nailed it all there. Hopefully, um, when people start looking at these BFR studies, there's, you know, one way to get published now is inflammatory titles. Um, yeah. We've seen that. BFR does not work. for. <laughs> so look a little bit deeper into the way they did these things and understanding the physiology. Uh, you know, what Zach's saying with the, the 10 sets a week, that's pretty, I adhere to that now. Yeah. Everything. So Cool. Well, that was maybe our quickest podcast ever. This is a kickoff to many more to come. We have a ton of papers to start going through and some guests that we're finally reaching back out to. So we're going to have um, quite a few more good ones coming out now. I've got some papers that I'm pretty interested in for us to go over. And other than that, I think peace, we're out. Cheers. Thanks, fellas. All right. Talk soon. See ya. See ya. Yep. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com. One last thing before we get out of here. First, want to say a sincere thank you for listening all the way through. But also wanted to remind you that this podcast should not be considered medical advice. It is strictly entertainment. It's a way for us to try to keep up with what is ongoing within the BFR world. If you require some sort of medical attention, medical advice, please seek that from a licensed individual within your state. Thanks, and we'll talk to you soon.